I always hate to break it up because I love the conversation. Um, but we are in the final week of our four-week saint series that we do every year before Advent. And our saint for this week is named St. Francis de Sales, who you are probably not that familiar with. Um, this is a different Francis to you. You probably know Francis, but that's Francis of Assisi. This is St. Francis de Sales, who was born in the year 1567 in a little French town near the border of France and Switzerland. And if you think about that date of his birth, 1567, this is in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, de Sales was born exactly 50 years after Luther first nailed his 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg church door. And so this was a time of chaos and restructuring of European society. I mean, if you think about it, Luther led the Reformation in Germany, and we kind of know a lot about that. But in France, also a Catholic country, the leader of the Reformation there was John Calvin. I kind of, this is just probably me because I think about this stuff more, but we, we sort of associate Calvin with Geneva usually. But Calvin was French. He studied um, philosophy in Paris, studied law in Orleans, um, and, and as the Reformation swept through Europe, Calvin was radicalized by French Reformation thought and began, of course, attacking the church. And he wrote these, I mean, scorching critiques and was so antagonistic that he made a lot of enemies rather quickly and had to flee to Geneva in exile. And, um, you know, the Reformation that, that sort of the narrative we learned around Reformation was about the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, which is a real thing. It was corrupt. But the Protestants had their issues as well. Um, Calvin was a zealot. He really was. And he was strict and he was merciless sometimes. Um, and eventually it became a de facto dictator in Geneva. Um, Geneva became really kind of a sort of a little totalitarian state under Calvin. And he routinely had theological opponents arrested and tortured. He had scores of people imprisoned, um, beheaded, even burned at the stake. And um, the Calvinists moved into Geneva and just sort of co-opted the, the Catholic church structure. They took, took the buildings, they killed or exiled all the Catholics. They took over the churches, installed their own pastors there. And um, of course, the Catholics were not blameless. Back in France, they brutalized the Calvinists that were left behind, these guys called the Huguenots. Um, we, not the Argonauts, it's a different thing, Huguenots. Um, we, we, think of, um, we think of Germany really as the center of the Reformation, but 50 years after Luther, France was the hotspot. And Francis de Sales, our saint for today, was born into that conflict. During this long stretch of war, over control of France. There were these eight different wars that were fought from the year 1562 to 1598. So like the, the second half of the century, the 1500s, was eight different wars in, in France. Um, there were some, and, and de Sales would have been born just like five years into this 36, 37 years of, of war. And um, these are often called the French Wars of Religion. But they weren't about religion at all. They were really about how to divide up power in France now that the, the Catholic Church was losing power. You know, it's kind of the mythology we're, we're all taught in, in school or when we learn about 
Reformation or, or modern day nation states. The, the modern secular nation state was invented and came to sort of save the whole world from terrible religious violence like the French wars of religion. The only problem with this story is it's totally not true. The, these wars were not about religion. They were the birth pangs of the modern nation state. Like the, just part of the emergence of a whole new political and economic structure in Europe. You know, Europe had been stable for a thousand, a thousand years, but new changes in art and philosophy with the Renaissance, new, new economic systems with capitalism, new technologies like multi-masted sailing vessels that could go a long distance or, or printing presses, it exposed people to, to new worlds and new ideas. And once you kind of get that toothpaste out of the tube, there's no, no putting it back in. And this exposed people to a lot of new thought and fueled massive cultural changes. And, and the Reformation was really just the religious form of this massive cultural shift that was mostly about economics and power. Religion was not the cause of these wars. It was the excuse. They were fighting over power. At, at the end of the Middle Ages, the close of the Middle Ages and the beginning, the dawn of this new period that came to be called modernity. And, and the reason I think this matters for us is that our Saint Francis de Sales for today, he was born into that whole mix. And also, we are living at the end of that period, the end of modernity in our lifetime, which is why Perhaps we're experiencing so much cultural and religious upheaval in our time because there are new philosophies, postmodern philosophy and stuff that comes in, in the wake of that. New, new economic changes, globalism, global capitalism, new technologies like the screen, the microchip, um, the smartphone, just the digital age. They have drawn us into a season of disorientation and, and not a small amount of chaos. And so if you're wondering why the world seems to have like gone a little bit crazy and is in constant conflict and different factions vying for power, often, by the way, portrayed as a struggle around morality or religion, just like it was back then, it's because we're living at the end of this epic of modernity. And there is now a massive power struggle to see who will end up on top. It's very confusing to live during this time and disorienting, especially to religious people or Christians who are trying to be faithful in a very polarized, chaotic world and, and how to face all of the, the injustice and corruption and, and violence with a kind of faithfulness. It's tough. And so I've chosen St. Francis de Sales because he was living in a very similar time to ours and trying to do a, a similar thing. He came from a wealthy family. He was raised to be a gentleman. He was taught riding and dancing and fencing. He was educated in law and philosophy. He had actually an appointment as a senator and an heiress for a bride. But Francis was drawn to the priesthood personally. He had gone through this season of deep personal and spiritual struggle that was um, brought on by the Calvinists that he met in, in college, and, and specifically this doctrine of predestination. And he was like a young man in his early 20s, just filled with all this angst about whether or not he was part of the elect. Anybody grow up with that feeling, that, that question? If you were Southern Baptist man, you were totally 
you would, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. I used to like sit up, go in the bathroom at night and turn on the lights and just freak out about whether I was going to hell or not. And um, my parents would come and, you know, not make me feel better. But um, <laughs> they were Baptists too. Um, but he was, he was consumed with this idea, like, is God angry and to be feared? Or is God loving and to be revered and even enjoyed? in our life. He struggled with this the whole time he was at university, and he kind of emerged from that time, which is kind of, it was angsty, convinced that God is love, and God wants good things for humanity, and God is not to be feared in the way that they were taught to be feared. God is to be loved and experienced with a sense of awe and reverence and even joy. And so he, he just left behind the life of a rich gentleman, which was going to be a pretty good life, and was ordained as a priest at the age of 26. And then his first assignment was he was sent to Geneva by the Pope as a missionary, the very seat of Calvinist power, where they controlled the government and the church are hardly any presence of Catholics in that region. And de Sales was faced once again with this kind of aggressive power of Calvinism. And he was charged by the Pope with converting these people back to Catholicism, which for the Pope was really about politics and influence. But for Francis, he had made this switch. It, it was about his sense of calling to people who had been taught their whole lives to be afraid of God. And he set out to convince them that God loved them and wanted to be experienced by them. And he knew that if this was his message, then he couldn't just go conquer Geneva by force. Plus, in those days, the, the people, the, like the common people, would sort of be whatever religion their leaders were. So like the personal beliefs didn't really factor in. If their leaders were Catholic, they'd be Catholic. If they were Protestant, they'd be Protestant. They would often even switch several times over the course of a lifetime, depending on who won the war. And so Francis had, had witnessed this, the way that like the, the Catholics and Protestants both had warred with each other and the way they both used the fear of God to control people. Like Catholics used it to... to sell indulgences, the, the Calvinists using it to sell conversion. And Francis came in and, and, and didn't want to sell them on anything except the idea that God loved them and that God's love could transform their lives. And he took kind of as his guide the first epistle to John, or the first epistle of John, um, who also lived at a similar time of upheaval, Right? The time in the wake of the, the Jewish wars that destroyed Jerusalem, right? And um, this, this growing, this fire of Christianity that had, um, was sweeping across his region. It, it was a time of, of real upheaval for them as well. Jewish wars with Rome, this new kind of Jewish sect called Christianity. And he was riding from, from Ephesus in like modern day Turkey um, to a bunch of Christians living in very confusing times and worried about their future. And he wrote to encourage them. And St. Francis de Sales just bathed himself in the epistles of John and began to share them with the people of Geneva. I wanna read some of this. I wish we could just read the whole thing, but I'll just read some of it for you. Um, we'll pick up in chapter two, just a, a little bit from several of the chapters. This is the message, he writes, we have heard from him and declared to you 
God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Not just God, with one another. In the next chapter, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And then chapter four um, that we read earlier this morning. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It's a stunning statement. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So, so Francis would, would show up at a village ready to talk about this, these themes. And what happened is, controlled by the Calvinists, they would pass an ordinance that it was illegal to go listen to him speak, so nobody would ever show up. And so he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. So he, he started to use this new technology. He would just kind of write out a summary of what he wanted to say, and then he would go use the printing press, and he would crank out these pamphlets. And he'd just post them up around town and just hand them out to people for free and walk around, put them under people's doors, and people would read them in secret and start to talk about what he was saying. And then they would, someone would sneak off to, to go visit him, and he would begin to preach to little groups outside the cities. And his, his motto to them was, or motto for himself for his preaching to them was, he who preaches with love preaches effectively. And it turned out to be true. He lived among them, not in the kind of opulence, opulence and, and wealth like the other bishops they were used to, and not with the fear and judgment of the Calvinists, but with humility and love. And it was infectious. And people latched onto his message. And over the course of just a few years, Francis brought more than 50,000 people 
to this kind of revolutionary, revolutionary experience of the love of God. At, at the same time, by the way, in the Catholic Church, this was um, during the Council of Trent, when essentially the Catholic Church officially adopted almost all of the changes that Luther had recommended in the first place. And so this wind of change was blowing through all of Catholicism, actually, at the time. Now, it may seem weird for a lifelong Protestant to, to be celebrating reconversions back to the Catholic Church, right? Um, but this happens from time to time, that your own people seem to sort of lose their way for a while. I, I mean, I feel this right now as a Christian in America who, who, who's been part of the evangelical tradition my whole life, right? I see my own tradition embroiled in culture wars, in politics, and, and, and preaching fear and violence, and vying for power, even embracing corruption, doing really anything it feels like to, to, to stop or arrest the, what, what feels like the loss of cultural power. And, and I, the truth is, for me, I just see no Christ in that. I can't be part of that. Because it does not seem to be rooted in love. It's rooted in fear. And I want the love of God to be the foundation of my life and to take hold in my life. As the epistle of, of John says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. I mean, can you imagine hearing that when you had been taught your whole life that God was to be feared and that God was ready to get you if you stepped out of line? And so Francis latched on to John's message and he started to share this with people and, and believing that, that fear is not meant to be the basis of a relationship to God. And he based it in, in John's teaching where, where John said, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We don't need to worry about punishment. That's been taken care of. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. That, the word perfect um, appears twice here in English. The Greek word is teleos, um, which doesn't mean perfect in the normal sense that we mean, like as in like flawless or, or blameless or without blemish or sinless. Those are kind of the, the normal ways we take that word. Teleos means brought to the end for which it was created sort of doing what it was intended to do. That's the kind of perfection this is. So love that does what it's intended to do drives out fear. That is its per perfection. People who do what humans are meant to do love. That is a human's perfection. That is the end toward which we were intended. We don't exploit fear for power. Our perfection, the end toward which humans are intended, is love, which is to say, is God, because God is love. I say this a lot to parents whose 20 and 21, 22-year-olds declare that they no longer believe in God, which happens to almost everyone. I'm just waiting on it to happen to me. And what, what I will say in that moment is, that's cool. Just don't stop believing in God or in love. Because God is love, of course, and, and then we're on the same, same journey. 
So when the gospel of love takes root anywhere, I rejoice. I don't care if it's Catholic or Protestant or something else, because I just don't want people to be afraid, because fear is not the basis of a, a spirituality that's based in, in Christ. And I want us all to learn how to love because God is love and the end toward which humanity is intended by God is love. And for that project, I actually think Francis de Sales is, is a very helpful guide. He ended up settling down near Geneva and was kind of under the bishop but in charge of all the priests, their day-to-day -day stuff, which was you know, largely still in a Protestant area. And then when the bishop died, he was appointed by the Pope as Bishop of Geneva, but he couldn't even go into Geneva. In fact, in his entire life, he only went in twice. If he, if he went, most of the time he would have been, been killed. And so he settled in this kind of nearby village and spent really the rest of his life trying to build up the church. But this kind of strange thing happened over the course of the next 20 years. He found this kind of niche ministry, kind of a, not, not the normal ministry for a, a priest and, and bishop. Um, all the priests would do the day-to-day -day parish work. And there was some administration that he had to do, leadership stuff. Um, but probably because he was still not in power and because he kind of had to stay out of the Calvinist way or they'd kill him, he began to take on the role of what we would call today a spiritual director, a kind of spiritual advisor or mentor to the people of the re region. And he just kind of worked under the radar to help people to see God at work in their normal everyday lives. And because he was in such a remote town, much of this happened through letters that he would exchange with people. And so we have a lot of what he told people. He sent so many letters, in fact, that the published version of the, just the letters that we have fills 11 volumes. It's about, I don't know, a foot and a half worth on a bookshelf. It's a ton of letters. He spent 20 years just writing letters to people, acting as their spiritual director. So they'd ask him, they'd, they'd write and, and talk about some just very practical situation they were struggling with in their life, and then he would write back and, and offer their advice on maybe what to do and just how to, how to see God at work in that particular situation. It's very, very practical. A local priest got a hold of some of the letters that he had written to a woman in, in his parish, and he, he went to him and said, this is amazing stuff. Like, this is good enough that if you don't publish this, I'm going to go around and get your letters, and I'm going to publish it. And so he's like, okay, I'll do it. So, so that he could, you know, edit it and make sure it was like he wanted. So he began to edit this stuff into a book, which ended up being one of the best-selling books of all time. It's called An Introduction to the Devout Life. It's, you can still get it to this day. And at the time... It was a revolutionary take on Christian spirituality. DeSales' approach, um, it, it came, it, you might have heard of Sil, um, Silesian spirituality. That's from DeSales, Silesian spirituality. It, it was based on three kind of, I guess you would say, principles um, of what it means to live a life of full devotion to God. They are, a life of full devotion is for everyone, not just the elites. It's rooted in love not fear, and it's practical. It's just about your everyday life. And at his time, all three of these were completely 
revolutionary. Let me go through all three of them real quick. First, a life of full devotion to God is for everyone, he said. Before DeSales, it was generally thought that the spiritual life was really only for priests and monks and nuns. Like Christian aesthetical practices were were difficult. It took a lot of time and a lot of discipline, and and they didn't really think normal folks could pull it off. And so they wanted them to just leave that stuff to the professional Christians. Normal people just needed to go to mass and confession, try to go every day, at least every week, week. But a life of full devotion really was not in the cards for them until DeSales came along and said, this cannot be what God has in mind. There has to be a way for just ordinary people to live lives of full devotion. And so he developed this spirituality with normal people in mind. Because before that time, there were actually quite a few spiritual writings, really good ones that we have to this day, but almost all of them were intended for monks and nuns and priests, not for normal people. DeSales was the first one to write to normal people, the common people. And he argued that actually common people have an advantage over the elite people of the day because they were humble. And he thought that humility was the most important aspect of the devout life. The, the priests were, were, you know, highly respected. They could, I mean, a lot of them were very, very rich and educated and, and powerful. They were easily a prideful bunch, you know, which he saw as antithetical to the devout life. And so it was kind of revolutionary. He's like, this is for everyone, and and the common people might actually be better at it than most of us. That was the first thing. The second one, life of full devotion to God, he said, is rooted in love, which we've we've talked about already. Um, But what he noticed was, in, in all the years of sitting and talking with people and writing and exchanging letters, that he just noticed that fear does not put people in touch with God. Fear can change our behaviors, but it cannot change our heart. That's what he thought. Fear does not especially have the power to break us free from, like, the persistent chains that bind us. It has to be love. It can't just be fear. The stuff that trips us up over and over, it's going to be love that sets us free from that stuff. And he said the the only way to to learn this kind of love was to try it. He wrote in that book, the introduction, he said, you learn to speak by speaking, to study by studying, to run by running, to work by working, and just so you learn to love by loving. All those who think to learn in any other way deceive themselves. And so he just sat around writing these letters, (laughs) advising people how to just love the people around them and even themselves in the very specific situations of their life. He especially emphasized this idea of love at the point of human sinfulness or brokenness. You know, that was the point where the Catholics and the Calvinists pounced on people to manipulate them. But, but he thought at that point, that's where God's love comes, comes to work and casts out the fear. God meets us in our broken, brokenness with these like endless second chances, right? Because he believed it, from reading the epistles of John that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love from top to bottom. And so these ruptures and contradictions that live at the heart of our lives and just stay there and 
cause all this tension. Um, the way that we're just less than we sort of feel like we could be if we could just get rid of, you know, this one or two things. These unconscious often patterns that just creep up and dog us over. And again, Francis said, that's the, that's the place. That's where love happens. That's not where guilt and anguish happens. That's where love happens. That's the good part. God meets us in that place of struggle, and it's God's love in that place that will transform us, not the fear of wrath or judgment. Fear can change our behavior, but not our hearts. For me, I can always tell when I'm in trouble on, on this issue because it, it, I, I start to, it's my self-talk. I start to monitor my inner dialogue, and what happens is I realize I'm calling myself horrible names. It's usually actually some sort of prefix followed by the word idiot. That's my self-talk to myself. And the, the prefix becomes increasingly profane depending on how bad the state of my soul is at the time, right? So it's just, it's, the, it's one of those dark things that is always part of my struggle. My self-talk start to just call myself in some kind of an idiot, right? And usually that's a signal if I wake up to it, um, signal to me that I am not allowing my mistakes, my sinfulness, my brokenness, to become a point of contact between me and God. It's become a wedge, right? And it can be. It's intended to be a point of contact. And I'll get down on myself, and then I'm off to the races calling myself names, and that usually leads to a critical spirit toward others as, as well. DeSales actually once addressed this in a letter, and um, he said this, he said, be patient with everyone, but above all with yourself. Do not be disheartened by your imperfections, but always rise up with fresh courage. That's good. I, I wish that for all of us. Because the basis of a devout life isn't fear, it's love. For God, for each other, for the world. And sometimes the hardest one is just to love ourselves as precious children of God. And this was revolutionary, revolutionary in, in his day, and I think in every day. The third aspect was that a life of full devotion is practical. And this is really kind of the celebrated genius of his work. Um, there's this letter that exists from a woman he was advising. She wrote to him saying, I, I try very hard to get to Mass every single day, which was very common back then, still is for some Catholics. She's like, I got these seven children at home, though. And, and so often I can't make it, and then I, I feel guilty, so can you help me figure out what to do about this? And, and DeSales wrote, wrote back to her and, and said, Madam, you don't need to try and go to Mass every day. Like, you, you might, should just not even try. And he told her, your path to the devout life will come, for the most part, through being the best mom you can be to those seven kids. That's your spiritual path. Your devotion to your kids can be experienced by you as devotion to God. He said, for instance, like a mother must be gentle with her children. So consider the practice of gentleness toward your kids as a spiritual practice, right? He said this to her, nothing is so strong as gentleness, nothing so gentle as real strength. It's like, learn this lesson. You'll learn this with your kids. That's spirituality. He was trying to tell me it's possible to just consecrate your everyday life 
You know, if, if a life of devotion can, can be for the mother or the bricklayer or the merchant in town, then a bricklayer's life of devotion will not look like a monk. We, and we can't expect it to do. It has to look like the bricklayer's life. If you're a teacher, your spirituality will be a teacher's spirituality, a teacher's life. Devotion to God is going to come through devotion to your own work. Your life will be the pathway to full devotion. That's what he taught. He summed this up in a letter one time. It's a great line, killer line. He said, be who you are and be that well. Right? That's, that's the genius of Silesian spirituality. Your spirituality will most likely come not as some practice that you cram into the life you already live on top of it. There will be some of that. And some of that is super, super important. But most likely, it's going to be just doing what you already do in in a different way. As you learn in the midst of your normal life to, to be who you are and be that well, not like perfectly as in blamelessly, but rather toward the end for which you were created, right? Which is love. Francis said that, that mostly we do this not by adding in spiritual things, but by doing the normal things that we do every day in spiritual ways. So it's a spiritual thing to fold the laundry. If you discern that, it can be. And direct your intention toward that end. And so he gave his, his spiritual directees this prayer, and I want to give it to you. So if you want to take a picture of it, um, this is uh, a prayer that he wrote called The Direction of Intention. And it goes like this. My God, I give you this kind of fill in the blank, this action. I offer you now all the good that I shall do, and I promise to accept for the love of you all the difficulty that I shall meet. Help me to conduct myself during this action in a manner pleasing to you. Amen. And he just taught them, whenever you're about to do something, do the direction of intention and see if that doesn't just transform the doing of the normal, ordinary things that you do and, and transform them into acts of devotion to, to God. And, and this prayer really is the basis of his whole spiritual method, his spirituality. And I wonder, if, if, as we go throughout our day and just doing the daily tasks, the mundane things that we do, what if we just tag this, this thing on the front of stuff. In fact, it would probably be better because it's not really our vernacular if you took this and just rewrote your own and then memorized it. And then just before you start to do stuff, you just pray this blessing on it, this declaration of your intention. I'm, I'm going to try to do this as a way to see you at work in the world and as a way to love those around me. And his, his idea was, and still is, that... This kind of normal life, this is the path to the devout life, and it's for everyone. And it's based in love, and it's just very practical. Doing the normal stuff you already do. Not a bunch of new stuff. The normal stuff you do in new ways. And so I offer the life of St. Francis de Sales to you, Redemption Church, and this, especially this prayer, the direction of intention, as a means of maybe transforming our, our daily life, just the stuff we already do, into the path to full devotion to God. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, we give you thanks for St. Francis de Sales and for all of the patient and quiet and anonymous Christians he advised, just struggling to live a life of full devotion in practical ways. We thank you also for John's letters that he wrote that, was, that were included in the scriptures and for this just unrelenting message that your nature is love, that our destiny is love, and that love is a practice, not a feeling, and that we're not so fatally flawed and broken that we can't learn how to love. And think about tomorrow that we'll get up and we'll just, you know, hit the Monday button and just start doing that. And I pray that you would interrupt the normal things and help us to direct the intentions of our practices, our normal everyday things. And as we kind of declare, okay, I'm just going to do this out of devotion to you, God, that it really would transform our normal practices. I'm grateful for the idea that it doesn't take spiritual experts and monks and nuns and priests, but that we can all live a life of full devotion. We just declare our longing and our desire to have that happen in our lives. Amen. If you would stand, please, and we're going to receive communion now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks for it, he um, broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. And he passed it around to his guys, and they all shared in eating it. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And again, they shared in this common cup, and he said, every time you get together, um, drink this cup, eat this bread, take my life into your life, remember who you are, what it means to follow me. And um, this is why we receive communion. It's kind of a weird thing to do. We come forward and eat together. It's odd. But we do it to remind ourselves that we're, we're feasting on Christ. We're taking his life into our life. We're trying to believe what he said we can believe about God and ourselves and each other in the world. And then we're trying to then leave here and go out into the world as, as the bread, as the light, as the salt that makes the world better. And so this is what we're doing. So we invite anyone who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. And I invite you now to, to pray a blessing with me. Lord, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. 
to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?